And thou shalt make the robe of the ephod all of blue. And there shall be a an hole in the top of it, in the midst thereof. It shall be a binding of woven work round about the hole of it, as it were the hole of a habergeon, that it might be not rent. And beneath, upon the hem of it, shalt thou shalt make pomegranates of blue, and of purple, and of scarlet, round about the hem thereof, and bells of gold between them round about. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, upon the hem of the robe round about. And it shall be upon Aaron to minister, and his sound shall be heard when he goeth in unto the holy place before the Lord, and when he cometh out, that he die not. And thou shalt make a plate of pure gold, and grave upon it, like the great engravings of a signet holiness to the Lord. Thou shalt put it upon a blue lace, that it might may be upon the mitre, upon the forefront of the mitre it shall be. And it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall be always upon his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. And thou shalt make and thou shalt embroider the coat of fine linen, that thou shalt make the mitre of fine linen, and thou shalt make the girdle of needlework. And for Aaron's sons thou shalt make coats, and thou shalt make for them girdles and bonnets, shalt thou make for them for glory and for beauty. And thou shalt put them upon Aaron thy brother and his sons with him, and shalt anoint them, and consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office." And thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness, from the loins even unto the thighs they shall reach. And they shall be upon Aaron and upon his sons when they come in unto the tabernacle of the congregation, or when they come near unto the altar to minister in the holy place, that they bear not iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever unto him and his seed after him. You may be seated. If you've ever watched some reconstructions of ye oldie times, be it middle, usually I'm thinking Middle Ages or post-Middle Ages, the idea of the Renaissance, there's a part of me uh, that, and maybe part of you, that misses the pageantry of those eras. When people in uh, positions of power reflected that power by coming in with regalia to demonstrate their authority. We're about to, in a few months, I guess, have the coronation of uh, the, uni- uh, the king of the United Kingdom, not our king, naturally, uh, but he, there will be a lot of pageantry and regalia involved in that ceremony. On our democratic proclivities in this country, I think, have so leveled our senses that we respect no persons regardless of office or responsibility, and that Uh, That idea has led to a lack of pageantry that I think has reduced fashion sometimes to the more regrettable uh, objectives. And as you can tell, I have very little personal investment in fashion, as your own eyes will tell you, and as you uh, probably know from my own uh, character. Pageantry often, though, follows power and possessions, and we do have our uh, series, our occasions of pageantry. The red carpet maintains some semblance of this uh, idea, but often without the decorum that ought to go with it. The same may be said of our seats of power. Regalia, after all, only makes an appearance at graduation ceremonies, and even they can be raucous occasions. 
But I wonder often if standardized regalia might restore some semblance of dignity to society and its government and institutions. Remember the days of yore when uh, children in schools would go in robes. While those robes had a stratifying effect because the teacher's robes were different than the student's robes, they also had a leveling effect because all students and all teachers were the same. But the high priest dressed differently than the rest of Israel, even though he was only a man like them. We have already looked at the ephod, the most exterior garment of the high priest. And note here the difference in progression of these garments. As we looked at the tabernacle, we noticed the progression went from the place of the presence of God, from the most holy place, outward. Everything progressed in an outward uh, direction from that uh, seat. Here, uh, with the high priest garments, they take what you might think is a reverse direction, because with the high priest as the object, they go from the external to the internal, the most exterior part of his uh, regalia to the most inner part of his regalia. But this is not really a change in direction. If you think about God as one end and man as the other end, then the progression is still the same and is still proceeding from God toward man. And so we go from the ephod, the Uh, most exterior part of the high priest's clothing uh, to the part closest to his body uh, today. We're looking at the rest of the garments of the high priest, and included in these instructions are the requirements of the garments of the rest of the priest. In each of them, we see more aspects and excellencies of our great high priest, even Jesus the Lord. We see the excellency of his work and the robe. We see the excellency of his office and the turban. And we see the excellency, uh, the greatness of his grace and the tunics. And so I want us to look at these three of the priestly garments here in this passage, the robe, the turban, and the tunics. Underneath the ephod, the high priest wore a robe made according to the instructions of the Lord. In these instructions, we find two characteristics manifested. We find elements of strength and sound. As we move away from the ephod, the color of the fabric changes notably. Look at verse 31. And thou shalt make of the robe of the ephod all of blue. Remember the, the, roy, the ephod was made of the royal fabric, the same fabric, the exact same fabric that appeared on the covering of the tabernacle and on the veil. And here, uh, the fabric has changed. It's only one color, the robe of blue alone. There is a sense in which perhaps the high priest himself must be protected from the fabric, the royal fabric, that is connected with the presence of God. The construction of this robe has some unique features that appear here and not upon the ephod. Look at verse 32. And there shall be a hole in the top of it, in the midst thereof, and it shall have a binding of woven work round about the hole of it, as it were the hole of a habergen, that it be not rent. The instructions indicate that this garment only had a hole for the head, and it doesn't mention any sleeves. And if you look at recreations of this, notably, they don't often have sleeves. This garment, therefore, would have to be pulled over the head and body like a sweater would. And for this reason, the hole for the head needed something special. It needed reinforcement so as not to tear. Those of you who have worked in fabric know how important it is for uh, that part of the fabric that receives the most stress uh, to be reinforced. But all of us who 
uh, wear clothes. We understand that if you move something or in the most stressed part of any garment has a tendency to tear. The protection on tearing and the prohibition on tearing has been attached to the crucifixion of our Savior. In John's Gospel we read, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his cloak. Now his coat was without seam, woven from top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it may be. That the vest scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldier did. I can't be certain that this is the intended prophetic nature of this garment, that in some way uh, the prohibition of uh, it being torn is reflected in the crucifixion of our great high priest. But there is another uh, aspect of this prohibition. We are aware that part of the uh, practice in society of this time, if you were in grief, was that you tore your garments, right? We also remember uh, that that's any sign of grief and sorrow was forbidden by Aaron, the high priest, upon the death of his sons. If any tragedy would have caused someone to tear his clothes, certainly Aaron had a reason to tear his clothes and mourn, and yet this was forbidden him. And Moses said unto Aaron, Leviticus 10, 6, And Moses said unto Aaron, and to Eleazar, and to Ithamar his sons, Uncover not your heads, neither rend your clothes, lest ye die, and lest wrath come upon all the people. Let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord hath kindled. Aaron there in the tabernacle, likely during the week where he is supposed to be there after his anointing, is told specifically by Moses, you do not tear your clothes. And I ask you to notice also the activity of the high priest during the trial of Jesus. In Matthew 26, 65, and the parallel passage in Mark, we read, Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of any witnesses? Now, of course, I do not believe it's not likely that the high priest at this point is wearing this garment. After all, it is designed for his work in the, in the temple, and he is there at his house. But there is something significant here that these two men standing face to face, only one of them is the true great high priest. Only one of them is able to, man, to make man able to stand before God. Only one is going to offer the sacrifice to turn away God's wrath. And he's the one whose garments are not going to be torn. Besides this curious character of the garment at its top, we also see its lower hem having unique features. Look at verse 33. And beneath, upon the hem, thou shalt make pomegranates of blue and of purple and of scarlet round about the hem thereof, and bells of gold between them round about. The embroidered pomegranates feature some familiar colors to us. I mean, it's almost as if we're getting... You might, if you weren't so enthralled with the Bible, as I hope you are, get sick of the fact that these colors keep showing up and over and over and over again. Uh, the same colors, the blue, the purple, the scarlet. There are some differences here, but you can clearly see these are pointing back to the presence of God. They are echoing that reality. But why pomegranates? They seem purely decorative. And their meaning we must infer from other places within the Old Testament. Pomegranates appear in depictions of plenty and fullness, especially in the promised land. 
You can read in Numbers 13:23, and they came to into the brook Eskel and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of figs and bare it between them, uh, between two upon a staff, and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. The very next mention of pomegranates, well, except for the making of all of this, is found here as the tw- ten tri- uh, as the twelve spies go into Canaan and they go and get uh, various things to bring back to the people to show how uh, bountiful and blessed the land is. And one of those things is pomegranates. But conversely, the pomegranate also uh, indicates God's judgment. In Joel 1.12 we read, The vine is dried up, the fig tree languisheth, and the pomegranate tree. Notice the three things that, that the spies bring back from the promised land to show its plenty. The vines, the figs, the pomegranates are exactly the same thing that in Joel, God says, I've taken away from you and they have dried up. And so we may see in the pomegranates the blessing that God sends to his people, his beneficence of them. Around the hem of the high priest's cloak, he is bearing witness to the fact that God has been so good to his people. Okay, well, that's the pomegranates, and now the bells. The Lord explains the purpose of the bells for us in verse 35. And it shall be upon Aaron to minister, and his sound shall be heard when he goeth in unto the holy place before the Lord, and when he cometh out, that he die not. Now, you might think that that's a relatively simple statement, but if you think about it, it's rather complex. There are two explanations that have arisen as to what this verse means. The first that I was exposed to was that the bells uh, were a sign to Israel that the sacrifice had been accepted. One of the reasons why the high priest goes into the holy place is because there has been a sin offering sacrificed, and he is to go in to the altar and smear blood, or to pour blood before the altar of incense. And the bells of him going in and coming out are the sign that, yes, the offering has been accepted. And yes, God has given forgiveness for the sin. The other explanation is that the bell signaled the high priest's entrance into the holy place, like your doorbell, in a sense. It's an announcement that you don't just bounce in and surprise, if I can put that in air quotes, the Lord by just coming into his house unannounced, but that the bells function as the announcement of someone approaching uh, the Lord's place. The tabernacle is a surprisingly quiet location. There's not a lot that goes on in the tabernacle that is vocal. Uh, In contrast to many of the other expressions of uh, religion throughout the, uh, uh, throughout the nations, the pagan religions, there's a lot of sound that goes on and, and chanting that goes on. The Bible doesn't have the priest doing a lot of this. In fact, you only get, when you, when you get to the psalmist, that's where you have congregational singing. But if you look at what the, what the, uh, what the priests are to do, there's not a lot of incantation, not a lot of chanting going on. And so these bells would be the audible representation that the, the high priest is going into the presence of the Lord. Now, truthfully, if you were to ask me which one I think is right, I'm not really convinced fully by either explanation. And yet I have a kind of historic, perhaps nostalgic attraction to the first explanation. The importance of the bells, though, is psychological. During the service of the high priest, he is risking his life. You get that sense, don't you, from this verse? 
these bells are to be heard when he goes in and when he comes out of the holy place in order that he does not die. Now, why do you put that at the end of the verse unless there's a possibility that he is going to die? That the high priest is risking his life by entering into the place in the presence of the Lord. Now, our great high priest did not risk his life upon entrance into the holy place, for he had absolute access. That's where he came from. He had every right to go into the presence of God because he was and is God. He risked his life. He didn't risk his life, but he laid down his life for his people. Our great high priest died that we might live in the presence of the Lord. The danger to the high priest's before Christ, proved that man, no matter how high his office was, could not stand in God's presence and lived. And the reason for this is sin. That we are born sinners and choose to sin. That we rebel against God's law and earn for ourselves death and hell. But our great high priest, Jesus, came to save sinners. He is God-made man, the perfect mediator between God and man. He lived a perfect life, sinless, able, without fear to enter before the presence of God the Father. But he died, not because he was risking his life, because he laid it down. Not because he lacked bells on his garment, but he willingly laid down his life that his people might be able to enter the presence of God without bells, without fear, and without death. And so he rose the third day, revealing that that access had been given. That they had everlasting life and a home in heaven. All this God calls you to believe, not only that it is true, but that it is true for you. He calls you to believe that what Jesus did, he did for you. He commands everywhere, every man everywhere to repent and to turn to the knowledge of the truth, to turn from sin and follow Jesus. My friend, I must ask you, will you hear the, and obey the call of God today? Christian, we may not share the same danger as Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, but we cannot ignore the regulative principle of worship without fear of consequence. Such warnings appear in the New Testament, in the instructions of the Lord's Supper, he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Even in the new covenant, even with Christ, our great high priest, there are consequences to failing to worship God according to his own instructions. And so we dare not handle holy things in a slight manner with disparagement. And yet our great high priest has no bells on, and neither do his people. And the point of this is not that we ought to be fearful as we come before God, but we, that we ought to approach with boldness. Hebrews 4 teaches us that we do not approach with trepidation. We do not approach God in fear that our lives are at stake. We approach God knowing that we have access. We approach God knowing that our great high priest stands in our place. We see this in the robe, but secondly, I want us to see the turban. We turn from the robe to the first garment that will actually touch 
the priest's skin. And the instructions, if you will, go from top to bottom. And so the headdress appears next with gold and with gifts. But interestingly, the headdress does not begin with that which actually touches his head, but that which goes on top of that which actually touches the high priest's head. Look at that in verse 36. Thou shalt make a plate of pure gold, engrave upon it like the gravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. We note that the medal is the plate of pure gold, a, a special medal that only appears often in the presence of God, and it's associated with that presence. Of note also, the word for plate can also mean flower, and I was struck odd by this because one commentator actually put, and you will make a flower of pure gold and engrave upon it holiness before the Lord. But the underlying word seems to indicate something that shines or something that is impressive. And while we would not want to ever read this word to insist on a floral design, it cannot be eliminated as a possibility. And yet the plate is not as important as the message that is written upon it. With the gold, the plate connects the high priest to the presence of God, the phrase, holy to the Lord. That phrase may confuse us since we ordinarily think of the word holy as an adjective, as an intransitive quality rather than a transitive quality, as is used his. We think of something as a holy or not holy. We don't think of it as holy to something. But the word holy means to be set apart, to be special, to be unique. It means the high priest uniquely re- represents the special relationship with the Lord, the covenantal connection that no other nation had, that no other people could claim. The high priest by virtue of God's selection of him, is separated from the rest of the nation. Just as the nation, by God's special claim upon them and choice of them, is separated from all the nations of the world. The connection of the plate also has familiar elements to us that we saw last week in verse 37. And thou shalt put it upon a blue lace that it may be upon the mitre, upon the forefront of the mitre it shall be. There's a blue cord that fastens the plate to the turban. The same material appears in the attachment of the breastplate uh, to the ephod. We noted that this blue matches the robe. It ensures that the plate always faces forefront. It's It's always above his forehead. It reminds all people of the character of the high priest. This reminding principle appears in Exodus 3.16, and it predicts a later instruction in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 6.8, and thou shalt bind them the words, the law, upon, for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontless between thine eyes. Later, the Lord, through Moses, will instruct the people, bind the law, probably figuratively, and stick it right in front of your forehead, just as you see the high priest there with holiness before the Lord, uh, holy to the Lord, stuck in that plate in his forehead, that's where the constant reminder of the law of God is to be in your life. There is a sense in which that plate is a reminder to all God's people and to Aaron himself, the high priest himself, of his character, their character, and the special relationship that they have and the covenant ability that they have toward to the presence of God. But even with all this inward reminder of the wearer, the instructions seem to point to a Godward application. Look at verse 38. 
And it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall be always upon his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. Well, the words here don't seem directly to discern its, its purpose. We can discern that it involves the sacrificial system. We have elements of iniquity along with the principle of gifts being accepted. The idea of gifts here, the use of the word gifts, may suggest the free will offerings of Israel rather than sin or trespass offerings. And if this is the case, and I suspect that it is, this verse suggests that even in their voluntary offerings, the things that the people of Israel give to the Lord out of gratitude for their hearts, not out of compulsion, but out of desire, even them, there are, there's iniquity and sin to be dealt with. But Israel often offers them with unclean hands that even in their acts of highest obedience, the people of God, those who are holy unto him, are still sinners. If this is the case, then the plate is a covenantal statement that reminds, I'm going to put that in air quotes again, the Lord, that these offerings are made by his people. The people that he has reserved to himself. There's a lot of this reminding the Lord of stuff that goes on in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus. We're not there yet, but uh, Moses intercedes with the Lord after the golden calf, and and the Lord says, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to destroy all these rebellious people and start over with you. And the Lord, (coughs) Moses goes on to remind the Lord of all of his promises. The Lord did not need to be reminded of all his promises. He never forgot all his promises. There's this, this whole situation is there because it's revealing something about God. It's revealing something about his, his covenant and his covenant people. That his covenant people can do things that make them worthy of death, and they need a mediator, someone who stands in the gap and says, No, but your promise, O Lord, must be done So that reminder, that plate, reminds God that these offerings are by his people. By virtue of his act, they are holy. These people are separate unto yourself because you have chosen them out of every other nation to be your own. But it also means that their positional quality implies an inward character, that God has not just separated them physically from all the other nations of the world, but by virtue of that, he also has endowed them with a character that is different. Now, our great high priest needed no reminder of his distinct character. He is the Messiah, the final of all the anointed ones of the Old Testament, He was the one chosen of God who is God, the Son. He needed no reminder to make his offering before the Lord accepted. But for us, this plate means so much. That our great high priest has made our service to God accepted. That we, who in our best efforts cannot but give our gifts to God, do the good works that he has called us to do, but with but with iniquity in our hands. 
The Westminster Confession of Faith says of our good works, as they are good, they proceed from His Spirit, and as they are wrought from, for, by us, they are defiled, mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. You have to give it to the, the writers of the Confession. They didn't mince words sometimes. But lest we should be depressed by that uh, right description of our good works, they continue, notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are accepted in Him, not as though they were in this life holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in God's sight, but that He, looking upon them in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is as here, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Confession says, even though our works are damaged goods, even though our best works are damaged goods, God accepts them. He accepts them because we are offering them and we have on our foreheads, figuratively, holy to the Lord because of what Christ has done. We are clothed in His garments and He sees our good works in Him, perfected in Him. This idea is not to make us careless about good works, but to make us more and more devoted to them. It is not to cause us to become lackadaisical in our holiness, but to give ourselves more and more to living out that which is true about us already. To revealing and forming that character that positionally we already have as those who are accepted by God. It doesn't cause us to be lax in our service, but to make every effort to serve the Lord with all we are and with all that we have. We see the robe and the turban, and finally I want us to see the tunics. We come to the, uh, to the last garments that are closest to the body of the high priest, indeed to all the priests, for the duties demanded of all of them required special garments. And we see this in the garments listed above and those that are below. The above garments for the high priest come rapidly, but simply, in verse 39. And thou shalt embroider the coat of fine linen, and thou shalt make the mitre of fine linen, and thou shalt make the girdle of needlework. So, uh, when we call it a turban, that's because it's made of cloth. And so, what is a cloth headpiece but a turban? We don't know what it looked like, but it was cloth on its head. And it had that plate, holiness to the Lord, on top of it. Then the... His coat or his tunic is of fine linen as well. Uh, the belt is to be made of uh, some woven work. The tunic appears also on the rest of the priests. Look at verse 40. And for Aaron's sons thou shalt make coats, and thou shalt make for them girdles and bonnets, shalt thou make, uh, shalt thou make for them the, for glory and beauty. The rest of the priests have tunics and belts as well. However, the headpieces have a different name than that name that is given to the high priests. His will be unique among the priests. As a reminder, we have very little idea what the headpiece, the tunics, the belts, or the robe looked like. Again, we're not trying to replicate them, only to learn from their description what the Lord is revealing about himself, his son, and our relationship to him. And the reason for these garments appears in the last verse, in, in verse uh, 40. Uh, make them for glory and for beauty. These are a copy of uh, the beginning of the instructions for the priestly garments in 28.2. 
And I'll quickly remind you what these words mean for glory. It's the Hebrew word kavod, which we have seen before. It refers to the weightiness of a subject, the heaviness of the Lord. It refers to his gravity, the importance of his person and character. And the garments of the priests are to reflect this attribute of the Lord. Beauty, the word seems to reflect an outward vision of attractiveness. And we often think that I, that idea is uh, a base consideration. We ought not to be concerned about the beauty of how things look. But if you look out in nature and see the beauty with which God created his world, it seems to be important to him. And all these garments connect with the choice that the Lord has made specifically of them among the Levites to do this special work. Look at verse 41. And thou shalt put them upon Aaron thy brother and upon his sons, and shalt anoint them and consecrate them and sanctify them, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. The Lord tells Moses, along with putting these garments on uh, these individuals, to do three things. First, Moses is to anoint them. This ritual indicates the Lord's choice and endowment of individuals. Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed by God. It was a demonstration, an indication that they have been uh, chosen by God to the office and that God had given them and blessed them with his spirit for that office. Secondly, Moses is to well, fill their hand is actually what the Hebrew reads there when you read uh, consecrate them or ordain them. It's to fill up their hand. And this can be a rather interesting uh, idiom for us to think about. The idea, I think, though, is to give the priest the ability and the authority to do the job entrusted to them. If you think, can think about a coronation, you know, you have the, the person is put upon the throne and he just sits there until someone puts the scepter in his hand. Uh, he doesn't have the, the authority to act in some ways. And that's the same idea here. Uh, there's a sense in which they are given the ability and the authority of the job that is entrusted to them. You can think of it this way. If the former, if anointing involves the endowment of the Lord, then maybe this is the recognition of the people. You have already been endowed with God. We are recognizing this and giving you the authority and ability to do the work that God has given you. And third, they are to be sanctified to be made holy. Uh, this act probably involves sacrifices. The sacrifice is necessary for a sinful people to serve in the presence of the Lord. Beyond these tasks, there's another garment that appears in the instructions. Look at verse 42. And thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness from the loins even unto the thighs shall they reach. <clears throat> Underneath all the tunics, all the robes, all the ephods, the priests, all have the same underwear. From Aaron and all of his sons, they have uh, the same undergarment. This garment is unusual because it gives you kind of exact measurements. Where does it start? Where does it stop? It must be worn at all times when ministering in the tabernacle. From the moment they step across the threshold of the court, uh, through the gate of the courtyard, they are to be wearing these garments. Specifically, this, this requirement deals with the altar. A pro and a prohibition we have already seen in Exodus chapter 20. When it, we read, Neither shall they go up by steps unto my altar, uh, upon my altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. Now, uh, there is a bit of sadness to these garments. 
Look at the verse 43. And they shall be upon Aaron, upon his sons, when they come in unto the tabernacle of the congregation, or when they come nearer to the altar to minister in the holy place, that they bear not iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever unto them and to a seed after them. Always they are to have these garments. Always is this prohibition. Always can there, never can their nakedness be seen in the presence of God. Now, if you just read that, you might think to yourself, well, that's a, probably a very good thing. But I would suggest to you that that's kind of a sort of bad thing. There's a bitter sadness to these, these garments if you go all the way back to Genesis 2. When Adam and Eve could walk in the garden with the Lord in their nakedness without shame. Never again may man stand in God's presence as he did in the Garden of Eden. Now nakedness in the presence of God is not the way in which God intended things, but an example of man's presumption, his arrogance, his folly that he alone with who he is can merit God's forgiveness could face the scrutiny of God's justice and live. And yet there's something glorious in these garments because God has provided us with something better. Adam stood before God with an imperfect righteousness. We stand before God clothed in a perfect righteousness. Adam still had to obey and he didn't. Our high priest has fully obeyed and fully absolved us of all of our sins. We have the righteousness of Christ. The Father has anointed him with power from heaven. We, his people, have placed our hands upon his head, and he has taken our sins and our infirmities. We have filled his hands with our sins, and he carried and removed them from us as far as the east is from the west. And he needed no man to sanctify him, for he himself sanctified himself for us, as he says in John seventeen nineteen. We therefore should use what we have been given. For the Lord has made us a kingdom of priests. And he has gifted us for his service. We have abilities. We have full hands with which, we, which, with which to serve in many different areas of God's kingdom. We have been sanctified, not through the blood of bulls and goats, but by the precious blood of Jesus. And yet we are called to use the Lord's gifts. We can't just sit around and expect those, these gifts to propagate he gives us something to do. We are called to use all the physical tools at our disposal to serve our Lord. We are called to sanctify our hearts by striving for holiness and regularly returning to the cross to seek forgiveness and healing. And we are encouraged in this task, for we have the Holy Spirit within and the favor of God and the intercession of our Savior the one who is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to your throne with boldness, for you have given us access in Jesus Christ. We come because we are needy people, 
We depend upon you to help us in our weak works to display your glory in the world. We beseech you to aid us in our service, to use the gifts you have given unto us for your glory. We pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. We ask this in the name of our great high priest. Amen.